Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be welcoming the CEO of Cadence Minerals, Kieran Morzeria. We're going to be discussing some recent updates from Cadence Minerals. We're going to be looking back at the key events of the last year and also looking forward to some of the most important events that we see on the horizon for Cadence Minerals. So we're going to get into the podcast now. We would like to welcome Kieran Morzeria. Kieran, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for inviting me, John. So, Kieran, there's some very recent results that we're going to be discussing from the Amapa Iron Ore project in Brazil. Um, we're going to be looking at the, the PFS and some of the figures there. And then we're going to be looking at some of the other uh, projects. Um, but before we do that, you know, not everybody listening to this podcast is going to be familiar with Cadence Minerals. So would you be able to please give us a brief introduction into Cadence and, and where you're operating? Yes, absolutely. So Cadence is an investment company listing on AIM. Uh, we have a policy, so we invest in the, uh, primarily our portfolio consists of uh, iron ore and uh, rare earth metals and lithium. So rare earth metals and lithium are those um, are those elements that are going to be very critical and there's a considerable shortage of to power the electric vehicle uh, revolution that we are seeing uh, today, um, even just recently, yesterday, we saw the the results from the penetration rates of electric vehicles into UK. Despite seeing lowering car sales, we're seeing more electric vehicles. So these elements are critical. So Cadence has been involved in these type of assets, investments in these assets for a long time. Uh, we take approach of either being a in in the public side where we're, we, we just take a passive investment or have a non-executive director position, or we take a real active role in the development of that asset, um, which is what we're doing with the Amapa Iron Ore asset. Fantastic. So let's stick with Amapa to, to start with, because of course there's been significant results in terms of the PFS pre-feasibility study uh, just in the last week. But Kieran, you know, of course, we talk about the PFS and pre-feasibility study, which is which is great uh, for those that are, you know, very much involved in mining. But, you know, would you be able to give some indication of the significance and how much of a milestone a pre-feasibility study is for a project such as the Amapa Iron Ore projects? Yeah, absolutely. Uh in essence, the PFS is uh, for the public is one of the first times you can see some concrete set of numbers and have a, a solid numbers in terms of economic outputs. But leading up to a PFS, typically, and not on this deposit, but typically, you have a really long lead time. So a, a, a deposit or a mining asset uh, gets developed through uh, exploration, which can take two or three years, defining a mineral resource. Um, after defining a mineral resource, you'll possibly do what we call a scoping study or a preliminary economic analysis, which is sort of a very low level study in terms of any engineering, any understanding, and you don't get a mineral resource out of it. Um, and then you go and embark on the PFS. So just to get to the PFS sometimes can take uh, in the order of six years, but if, if it's an undiscovered deposit, but if it's or, uh, unlike this one, which was already to discover deposit, 
And that's why we took the investment in it and it already had its infrastructure. The PFS then represents the first step in uh, giving a, an understanding of the engineering requirements, uh, the capital costs, the environmental requirement, the licensing pathway, the social uh, the social impacts and how you are going to mitigate any, any negative impacts there. So it's a comprehensive study. And what we published is actually just a summary, uh, a very brief summary of the total study, which is in the, you know, in the region of 600 pages plus a further, um, you know, 20 reports that support that PFS. So it's a substantial um, amount of work and significant amount of work, which we started really in earnest February uh, last year when we gained ownership of this asset, uh, formally gained ownership of the asset through the um, settlement with the bank creditors. This now represents the jumping off point to go down the development pathway to production. So typically, and we would go from PFS, you would go, you would have some options, which this has some options to investigate, go to a D, uh, which could improve the economics. Then you go down to a definitive feasibility study, which is this net, the highest level of engineering, which you typically utilize to secure financing. Um, and then you have after that, what they call detailed design engineering, construction, um, commissioning, and then into full production. So there's still stages to go. Uh, but this represents the first time, uh, both at a level of uh, 20, 25%, both in accuracy and engineering and uh, economic factors, that but the public has an understanding of the incredible value, frankly, that this asset represents to Cadence and its joint venture partners. So, Kieran, you you spoke about the timelines, which I just want to pick up on before we go into the technical details of the of the, of the PFS. So, you say that you know the PFS was completed. In a, in a quicker time frame than if it was, uh, you know, a, f- a fresh discovery. You know, first of all, you know, why is that? And, you know, does it mean that the overall timescale from, you know, starting the P- PFS, obviously completing the PFS and then moving into production may be a little bit quicker than it would otherwise be in a fresh discovery? Yeah, uh, so I'll deal with those in... Uh, the, the two questions. Um, remind, sorry, what was the, what was the first one you talked about? And then I was I was just thinking about the answer to that first one. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so the, the the first one was, you know, when, when you're looking at the the speed that you had yeah. the PFS done, you know, what was the reasoning behind that? You know, what is it about, okay, yeah, is yeah. It about uh, Napa uh, that uh, that that sets that up? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it, it's what it, it, the the reason the PFS was much shorter was precisely because of why we wanted to invest this this asset because it was already a producing asset um it already had a historic resource which technically you can't you, you have to update that resource which we did in october last year um so it already had a lot of the data information um that you would require to uh, do the pfs so for example in a, a key example in a pfs uh, you would have to do what they call bench scale or um, uh, small plant scale testing to see what the recovery on the ore was. Of course, we have a history of mining data because it's uh, which shows that this is was recoverable, and we didn't need to do that. And bench scale testing can take six months on its own to see what type of uh, results you get and optimizing the process flow sheet. 
So that's the flow sheet of how you take the iron ore and produce an iron ore concentrate. So we had those key advantages. Um, and we also had historic studies which we could base our pre-feasibility work on. So the pre-feasibility work, and we didn't have to do any drilling for the mineral resource uh, or, the, uh, or, the mineral, or the mineral reserve. So those two things really shortened the timeline incredibly because typically you would have to do further drilling, further testing, um, you know, surveys in terms of, uh, you know, topography and so forth. But we had a, a lot of that data, so that shortened the PFS. And that's why we like this asset, because also the risk was, you know, really largely removed. If you take a new exploration asset, you are buying in on the potential of something in terms of a resource or reserve and its economics. We knew all that because it was clearly profitable beforehand. It was clearly able to produce. Its product was known. So we were able to eliminate a lot of that risk. And because it was previously in receivership and we took it out, but we were able to get an entry point, you know, our first 27% of this asset cost us 6 million. Um, and our 30% cost us 9.3 million in total for an asset that's got an NPV of 949. So yes, it shortened the PFS stages. Now, that is where the massive gain in terms of shortening has occurred. We will see some shortening in terms of the development of the DFS and the development uh, 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 and in some late, late uh, regards to go to production. That's not necessarily because the, the, the construction will take any shorter because you still have to rehabilitate not just a mine and a processing plant, but a, a uh, port and a railway. The shortening times that we're going to see is licensing, the external factor. Often licensing to get environmental licensing in Brazil will take two years. So you would embark on your licensing process now. Um, well, we could, well, more than two years. It will take a, a year to two years of background studies, then a further year of actual uh, approvals in the Brazilian process. And that's not atypical around the world. So the licensing for environmental, as this asset already had a license, an environmental license to operate, we are using those in, uh, impact studies um, and we believe that we'll be able to get a much shorter timeline. So we'll see a shortening in the timeline for licensing rather than, let's say, um, any sort of construction. Um, and we'll see a shortening, a slight shortening in the DFS. So the timeline, the critical path is typically driven in these projects, often by the licensing process. Our, license, our critical path is shortened. So yes, we will see a shortening of the um, a typical con to construction and commissioning. But the biggest shortening we've seen and the saving we've seen has been in getting the pre-feasibility done. Thank you. So, Kieran, let's get into the numbers now. PFS released earlier this week. What were the key takeaways from that? Key takeaways are this is a substantial asset uh, that is going to be producing or plans to produce 5.3 million tonnes of FE concentrate. The large majority of that is a 65%, a high-grade iron ore concentrate, um, about 4.4 million tonnes. The remaining is a lower-grade 62% concentrate. This is a change to what previously was produced in that area. That was produced much, there was only about 1.8 million tonnes of 65% concentrate produced. The rest was lower-grade. So that improves the profitability of the asset. That then reflects in uh, the um, you know NPV, where we look at an NPV of nine hundred, close to billion, but nine hundred forty-nine million. 
life of mine EBITDA are about $235 million per year. And out of those economic costs, uh, you know, we get a, a payback of four years, uh, internal rates of return of 34%. And we get a cash cost delivered to our port, which we own at, at $35 a tonne and delivered to uh, China at $64 a tonne uh, under current shipping estimates. And when we look at that compared to the revenue side, we, we're estimating about $114 a tonne uh, of revenue for our products. So there you can see there's a substantial margin there. And our CapEx, um, although people might look at it and go, wow, $400 million, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot. I, I, would, I would have to say that I would disagree with that. If you look at iron ore assets around the world and you want to develop a deposit of this size, um, uh, well, let's just look at Brazil. A metric and a rule of thumb they'll use there is it's about $100 per tonne of material you produce. So something like this, just for the mine, remember we have both, just for the mine and benefication plant, remember we've got the mine benefication plant, have a concession for a 183-kilometre railway, uh, which we will own and operate, and we own a port, which can be utilised for other export, but for, let's fix, for, for the sake of this, just include it in there. You know, just the mine would cost an, uh, around $600 million typically. Um, uh, and externally, like in places like Canada and Australia, it could cost much more than that. So about five, $500 to $600 million is what it would cost just for the mine. For us, the mine in direct costs is somewhere in the region of $200 million, where the, and the remaining of, of, of the, uh, the, uh, the, the capex of 400 is at the port and at the... Um, um, and under rehabilitation of the railway. So for us, this is an incredibly positive um, uh, uh, PFS with strong economics. Certainly the net present value exceeds what I expected. Uh, the, um, the, the, the cash costs are there or thereabouts what I've actually told the market. The mine life is it's further than I expected. I think we've been quoting 14 years. We've got a couple of other years out of that. And um, uh, the product, the production is exactly as expected as well. So overall, it's been at least in excess of what we expected or where we expected to be in terms of the key metrics. There's many other things that we could go through and, you know, what, how can we improve those? But we'll, we'll go on to those a bit later on. So you, you've actually answered one of my next questions there, Kieran, in you know, your expectations going into the PFS. But of course, you said that in terms of the, the MPV and other key metrics has actually exceeded what you uh, were expecting. So, you know, let, let's look to the future now. What's next at AMAPA? What are, what are the next stages for development and, you know, what's going to be happening this year? You know, next year and, you know, the, the, the different points that investors should be looking for as you move towards production. So I, I think let's look at the operational bit first and then maybe look at a bit more sort of how you go to operation and production. So PFS, as I sort of talked about, often provides you opportunities um, and when you're doing this research. Um, and, and this PFS has provided some substantial opportunities to look at initially. The first I talked about, which both of which we expect to uh, expect to improve the NPV, one on a cost basis, on a capital cost basis, and the other on a revenue side. So having a, a double whammy. 
So what we see is the first one on a cost basis, one of the things that we noticed is the capital costs uh, of, of the port was quite excessive. Uh, well, it is higher than we expected initially. And why is that? It's because, in essence, the, uh, re the reason why this asset actually stopped operating, it was profitable um, prior to this, was that there was a port failure and that has to be repaired and it was constrained in how much iron ore it could export. It was, you know, burning $20 million a month on the on the um, uh, the mining of the material, but it was unable to export that amount of material. It's only expect be able to export like a third of it. So effectively went into receivership. So we have to rehabilitate the last 20%. But we looked at it and said, well, if we change the orientation and the morphology of, of how the railway unloads the iron ore onto the uh, onto our jack-up rig, we could actually negate actually having to do the last 20% of that concrete work, which could possibly reduce, we've done a trade-off study, uh, which could possibly reduce our capex on the port by uh, $50 million of direct costs, which is substantial. So there's one saving. The other side is how, how can we increase revenue? So 16 year mine life, although respectable, we would like to see longer. I would typically like to see a, a larger mine life. And this asset is along a, a mineral trend uh, locally, which to the north of us goes into the Tacana gold mine. Tacano gold mine and a Mapa iron ore mine have historically have had, whether there's a uh, whether it's been receivership or not, the, there's been an agreement where parties are allowed uh, for a fee to effectively mine off each other's area. Tacano is allowed to mine gold, and we're allowed to mine iron ore. Uh, and, you know, Anglo did that and they identified in 2011 a historic mineral resource of 150 million tonnes at around 36% uh, iron ore. So that is a target that we'll be looking to um, develop um, to expand the mine of li life of mine, which will add further NPV. Um, we, en we, we estimate somewhere between 100 and $150 million, depending on actually how much of that resource still remains given that it has been mined for gold and depleted in that period of time since 2011. So those for us are two opportunities. There are others, but those for us that we definitely definitively are identified that we'll be working on initially. Uh, the next stages as the overall project of a mapper on an operational front is once you've finished those two, two jobs is to embark on a DFS. We will um, although before that, we'll be looking for DFS contractors, appointing the DFS uh, contract manager and the very relevant engineering firms, which does take some time. You know, it's a couple of months to get through that to three months to get through that because it takes time to get quotes and et cetera. But in the meaning, after that, we'll embark on the DFS. DFS then goes to the project financing um, and project financing typically um, will the DFS allows us to go uh, to get for debt financing. In this project, you'll have about 80% debt and around 20% um, equity. And then from project financing, um, and this is typical, you've got about a, a one and a half to two year build out um, and then uh, immediately commissioning and, uh, and into production. So um, the, the timeline is not different to what, you know, it's a bit shorter because of licensing. Um, but uh, I would say that's probably shorter than about six months of a typical uh, project of this size and scale, given that we're not only doing a mine, we are rehabilitating a port and a railway. 
So that that's roughly an idea of timelines. Often I don't want to give a definitive timeline because although we have expectations of licensing and so on and so forth, things that are external uh, that we have no control over can affect us. So we always have to be cautious about giving definitive timelines. But nonetheless, now is a very clear way, plea pathway to production. Um, we have the starting points in the PFS to really start engaging with offtake partners, possible JV partners, um, and strategic investors at a project level to develop this project even further. So, Kieran, if we may, could you just talk about your ownership structure? So, at the moment, you have a 30% interest in the Amapa Iron Ore project with the first right of refusal to take a 49% stake. I mean, is that something that you feel you're going to be taking up? And, and you know, what are the you know, what are the factors that would dictate your decision to take up a greater stake in the uh, in the in the project? So, I, I think initially we will be, of course, increasing our stake because we are funding the asset, um, and uh, you know that therefore we will slowly increase our stake as we continue to fund the asset through these uh, these initial stages. Um, certainly for you know the improvement of the PFS in terms of the uh, trade off study that we've already done and. Uh, the exploration work, uh, sorry, the expansion resource, possibly. Um, after that, uh, and it will really be depending on discussions with potential strategic partners into the asset, we may decide that uh, um, it'd be better to take money from those people to fund those assets rather than either divest some of our shareholding or dilute uh, equity um, uh, to take dilute our equity position in the UK. Uh, by uh, by placing. So our view is to look out for the best for our shareholders as a whole. Um, and of course, we're really attracted to this asset. And if the pricing was right um, in terms of uh, the ability to raise capital and we had liquidity in some of and the returns that exceeded our expectations of some of those assets, uh, raison d'etre is to invest grow, uh, get a good return on investments, and then reinvest to grow again. Um, and so that's what we would intend to do. It all depends on outcomes across the board. But at this point in time, we are increasing our stake because ultimately expenditure is still ongoing as we move on to the next stage through DFS. But if there is a good opportunity from a strategic investor, there is no reason the joint venture partners would consider taking that money and therefore, uh, uh, and for us, that would prevent any further dilution in terms of funding going into it by selling off investments that we didn't wish to or raising capital in the market. Thank you. So just one final question here on a mapper, Kieran, before we, we move on to the rest of the portfolio. Uh, from my understanding, there was... A number of stockpiles mm -hmm. uh, at the Amapa project, um, and there was some shipping activity uh, last year. I mean, is that something that's ongoing? Is there any updates on what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, for those that don't know or don't remember, uh, you know, there, there is apart from this whole pre-feasibility study, there was a whole because it was in receivership. There was a whole legal process called equivalent of a Chapter Eleven that we had to go through to gain ownership of this asset, which we actually only got the full, you know, our JV company only owned 100% of this asset uh, completed roughly this time last year, in fact. Um, but as part of, and that was part of that was to settle with the secured bank creditors. So there was a historic liability 
um, with some bank creditors that lent money to redevelop this asset historically, and that needed to be paid back, or would should you know would would need to be paid back. We agreed a settlement which um, uh, was signed and um, last year, well, sorry, last year was signed uh, in December uh, 2021, 20, uh, and that then precipitated our ownership. And to repay back those bank creditors, we were to use our stockpiles. Um, and last year, those you know the margins. If you, we still had the the you know we had the the effect of slowing downs of economy and sort of iron ore in China and COVID policies there, we dropped iron ore prices. And in addition to that, we still had this backlog of huge amounts of high shipping rates. That has changed, particularly in the last three months, and we're seeing margins that will that are improving. Now, the whole way that this works with the banks is that they also, when we're selling, they have to see that there's a reasonable margin and they would like us to sell that, um, that material. And at the moment, you know, we see that there's a substantial margin and hopefully the banks will uh, approve, continue to approve the sales. And uh, we should start seeing hopefully some shipments uh, dependent on the banks, uh, you know, approving them uh, f- uh, to effectively pay back those, uh, pay back that, that credit to the bank. So I certainly hope doing this year we will start, re- if the margins remain the same, we'll start re-seeing the re- restart of shipment of the iron ore concentrate stockpiles at 58%, uh, which are held at our port. Fantastic. Right, Kira, let's now move on to... The rest of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's look at um, we're going to look at everything. But actually, just 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 before we do that, um, I've got some numbers scribbled down here on a map. Of course, you mentioned there the the nine four nine MPV, what a thirty percent stake. You know, there were some thoughts that I had before we recorded this about the valuation and you know, the current valuation of, of cadence and then the, the overall valuation of, of a mapper. And, you know, it appears that there's a, a disconnect. You, you know, if you look at that figure, you know, the 949, you know, how, how much of that can be translated down at this point into a potential book value for cadence? And, you know, how much do you feel there is a disconnect between that value and uh, the valuation of the equity at the moment? Well, uh, if you looked at the reaction I, um, from the market, which um, was was not great, <laughs> uh, we, 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 the, the, obviously either it had been completely priced in, or they uh, and people had completely anticipated the NPVs and uh, and and effectively priced it in, or um, or the or the market valued it. They didn't have any value to this, which I think are both probably not rational positions. Um, and I think that the, basically the market or you know, we're predominantly retail held. All our institutional base has continues to hold its stock and, and bought in. And the, obviously the management have continued to buy in. Um, I recently just bought some stock in the company. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it very much is it's seen as a liquidity event. And if you look around many other stocks, you're seeing when there is a liquidity event, um, people for various reasons want to trade out in a risk-off environment. So I think that's what's happened. Where do we see the value? Look, I certainly agree that this is undervalued. Um, You know, WH Island, I think, attributed, um, I might misquote, but people can have a double check of it, you know, just on 
on this uh, this asset attributed around the 30p valuation on this uh, on this uh, on on the results of this PFS to Cadence. Then we have our other assets, which are book values, are very clear to see, and I don't even need to speculate the valuation. The book value of our public portfolio is somewhere in the region of um, five million uh, or, or there or thereabouts. We have. Uh, Hastings Technology Metals, which we've got to deal with them, which is attributing stock in theirs of about 5.1 million. Uh, uh, and then you have Evergreen, uh, which we've got stock of theirs of 2 million. So just on that alone, we're sitting at 12 million. Um, forget about the value that a map uh, iron ore would add to us. Um, and then, of course, Sonora, which a uh, book value, uh, how much we paid for it, is another 3 million. So it certainly looks like the market is certainly not ascribing any value based on a PFS um, to cadence. Um, and I think, you know, as we see a change in the economy, you know, as China is coming out of its COVID, uh, you know, whether we think this is an advisor policy or not is a different matter, but we will see China coming out of its uh, uh, COVID restrictions and we will see a growth in economy and stimulus across the board. So I think you know, China is where the large amount of the market is. I think 70% of the iron ore market. That's going to drive iron ore prices. And um, and I think that will drive a, an improvement in our share price as we, as we move forward during the year. I would certainly, you know, I'm not going to be investing at these prices thinking that it's going to go uh, up a very small amount. I certainly feel there's substantially more value to be had in cadence. Indeed, and I think you've picked up on it there. Kieran, that it's this risk off mentality that we're seeing in the markets at the moment, particularly in the junior resource sector, um, that there's a big disconnect between valuations and what uh, what, what investors are actually attributing to those assets. And, you know, I don't think that's anything to do with the, the sector or the assets. It's very much down to the macro environment and we've seen these cycles move uh, in in the past and it can be quite violent on the upside Sometimes. Um, so I did mention there Evergreen, Kieran. So let's let's move on to Evergreen. You, you said there you've got a book value of three million in uh, in the company, but it's looking potentially at a listing in the ASX this year. Is that still looking like it's going to go ahead? Yeah, uh, it, absolutely. Uh, it is still going ahead. There's uh, it's going through the last uh, sort of ASX approvals. Uh, and, and so we certainly see that that's going to proceed. Uh, the market for the lithium market in Australia, especially, the, is still quite hot. And uh, it is a potentially incredibly interesting asset. Um, just to give you a bit of perspective, it's right next door to Core Lithium. Core Lithium uh, is just starting exporting its hard rock spodumene lithium product. Um, which is a precursor to lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide, which is used in battery uh, electric vehicles. Um, and that, uh, you know, that core lithium um, has a market cap of about 1.9 billion Australian dollars. And this asset is right next to door to core lithium uh, on similar geomagnetic geom- anomalies and has certainly got um, pegmatites exposed and certainly has got... Uh, some geochemistry that is positive and we basically sold our asset we had some licenses in a private in a private vehicle and we thought it better rather than coming to the market effectively uh raising equity to do some drilling exploration 
just get someone else to do it. And that's what's happened. You know, we, we sold our stake uh, in Evergreen, um, uh, which was around 30% for initial uh, 1.8 million pounds. Um, and, and, and a further, um, it could go up to 3.8 million pounds in total um, if, if they're successful with certain um, operational targets and discoveries. But what's most important, it gives an exposure to an Australian asset, which if it performs, it's all, you know, it's going to, it has no requirement of cash because they are going to spend a minimum of 4 million over three years to discover this deposit, uh, to explore on this deposit. So we're really positive about it. I think for us, it has the incredible potential um, as an early stage exploration greenfield asset uh, to replicate something like, if it could replicate something like core lithium, that would be a bonanza for cadence shareholders. Indeed, indeed. I was looking through core lithium's numbers very recently, and they are very compelling. And you know, the, the location of that asset as well to the Darwin ports is particularly compelling as well. So, just to, to finish off now. Um, Kieran, can we have a look at the rest of the, the hmm. portfolio? You mentioned there Hastings. Um, let's talk a little bit about Rare Earths as well. Yeah, so, so Hastings is uh, is an asset that we've held for a while. We again invested, uh, you know, in stock and equity about nine hundred thousand uh, pounds. It was a joint venture over a portion of a license. Um, so we had a thirty percent uh, joint venture over a much larger rare earth plate near Dinium specifically in this case which is used in permanent magnets um, in electric vehicles uh, for the motors. So that, you know, we, we had a choice. We could either not contribute, which we don't, we, it, was a, it was a free carry effectively on this, on this area that would get mined in year seven or nine um, and have 30% and wait for that to happen and wait for the dividends to flow in year seven and nine of the life of mine. You know, it still has to be constructed. It is in the process of construction at the moment or take a stake in the larger play. And we decided to take a stake in a larger play um, and we basically swapped that 30% for 5.1 million pounds worth of uh, the agreement is 5.1 million pounds stock in Hastings Technology Metals, which then we have the exposure to, or we have all the advantages of the exposure to the whole of the asset and none of the disadvantages of waiting seven years and you know and, and, and as we didn't have really any control or save it it was best better to take a, a stake in a liquid stock um, that hopefully should con- should uh, continue to improve as it gets to production so we will have an exposure to that um, and you know both across evergreen and hasting technology we have hit our investment targets in which we um you know basically made a return of between both of them across both of them about 400 percent each of them about four times our money that we put in. So we've already hit those investment targets uh, in relation to the transactions we did on both of them. So looking forward to that completing. The reason we haven't got the Hastings shares just yet, and hence it's not on our balance sheet, is ultimately there is uh, a like to transfer ownership of licenses. You have to go through the Western Australian state system, and that's a bit backlogged with the amount of transactions that have been going on there through various, you know, the exploration boom in terms of both lithium and our, um, or mainly lithium in Western Australia. So yeah, so Evergreen and Hastings have been those two. The last one is, I, I mean, European metals people know about. Uh, it's a publicly listed stock uh, and uh, we've got a stake in theirs and 
is an incredibly strategic lithium asset. Um, um, and we've long, long held that and we continue to support them. Um, the, the next one, which people are a lot of talking about is uh, the Sonora Lithium Project. Um, that again, multi-generational, I think it's, you, you can look up its size of deposit. Um, again, we have a license uh, and it's owned by Gang Feng who bought it out from Bacanora a while ago. We have a license that gets mined, a 30% of a license that gets mined later in the mine life of the asset. Uh, but I think the many things that being, people have been talking about or asking about is, uh, certainly on the uh, bulletin boards, is, uh, you know, Mexico went through a period of transition in which they sought to sort of pseudo-nationalize or have a uh, government institution to run all lithium projects, all new lithium projects. Um, and... And there was a lot of speculation how this would affect that. I, I certainly, you know, gang, we've obviously been in discussions with Gangfeng. The, the opinion from their side, and we certainly concur with that, is is that as these licenses were already granted, uh, they are still valid. Um, and they, um, you know, uh, they should be developed. It's a substantial asset uh, with a multi-generational and strategic asset. So, it, it, you know, it's owned fundamentally by Gangfeng. We are a joint venture partner on part of it. And uh, we certainly believe that it will, it, it, it is, the licenses are still valid. Um, and as the Mexican ruling was effectively, that's for new licenses. So I really can't say much more than that because of course, anything that Gangfeng or discussions that occur between them and the government um, are commercially sensitive. And once there is something that is significant and uh, price sensitive, we will announce it um, uh, and we'll, we'll put, make the public aware of it. Thank you, Kieran. It's a very substantial overview there. Um, and just a note to listeners, there will be a link through to the Cadence Minerals website. So if you want some more details on the projects that Kieran has just discussed, then of course the Amapa Iron Ore projects, do have a look at their website. Uh, there's a bit more technical reports on there, um, as well as a full list of uh, the recent news uh, updates. So, Kira, just on a final note here, of course, the, the flagship project is a mapper focused on iron ore. In your view, where does iron ore go in terms of its prices this year? <clears throat> I, I think I gave a, a, a brief overview. I think it's going to be supportive, um, mainly because I'm still of the firm belief that uh, China coming out of, uh, of COVID um, as I said, maybe we agree with the policy or not, but they 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 they're coming out of COVID. They are going to want to stimulate that industry, and they will uh, there will be some stimulate stimulants to to um, to e economic stimulants there in, in in China, which will reflect in the consumption of iron ore. They are the largest market in the world, and therefore how they behave ultimately determines the price of iron ore. So I see it positive for the next year. Um, and obviously, we see it as a relatively, specifically, the higher grade material. We see greater margins between the 62 and 65% in the longer term because of its lower energy consumption uh, possibility, uh, you know, lower energy consumption. Um, and of course, there will be this DRI grade, which is a 67%, which can be, doesn't have to use metallurgical coal and can use gas. So then the pricing of that will increase further as we transition to more green steel. Um, and then the 65% will also increase in price. 
we see certainly things like 58% material lowering, lowering in price and maybe only suitable for local markets such as India. So we, we, we certainly see a stronger price, a strong price um, in the over the long term for iron ore. Um, and that's why we've utilized, uh, you know, a 95%, $95 per tonne, um, 62% iron ore in our financial model for our PFS. Fantastic. Kieran, thank you much for being on the podcast today. Uh, thank you as always. So just as a final note, just reiterate, do check out the notes to this podcast for the link through to Cadence Minerals website. We will find a lot more information. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.